Welcome to Inside Aesthetics, the podcast for cosmetic, wellness and business insider knowledge. I'm Dr. Jake Sloan, a cosmetic doctor based in Sydney, and I'm joined by my co-host and good friend David Segal, an entrepreneur and a multi-clinic owner in the aesthetic space. We'll cover any topic that makes you look or feel good with long-form, unbiased and unfiltered conversations with expert guests from around the world. New episodes are released every Friday and you can subscribe for free on your favourite podcast app, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. You should seek medical advice before undergoing any treatment or procedure and these podcasts do not replace a professional and bespoke consultation. Good morning, mate. How are you? I'm all right. I'm all right. Thank you so much. It's lovely to talk to you. How are you guys doing? We are really good and you're in lockdown number three, so... Sorry to sort of hear all of that. What, what's 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 happening <laughs> on your end? What about you guys? What what number lockdown are you? We only had one. <laughs> well, lockdown. <laughs> yeah, we only had. Well, we had one, oh, and then is we that had. Right? Yeah, we had like a little cluster in uh, like uh, an area of uh, Sydney, which is about an hour and a half north of or hour north from where Jake and I are. And they had a little bit of a lockdown locally, but that was only for a couple of weeks. Yeah. But it's been other than masks in shopping centres and some establishments. It's been relatively normal here yeah. for quite a while, so we're lucky. But um, sounds like you guys have gone for the trifecta there. Yeah, and it's uh, they're kind of they're speaking of extending every day. We're we're promised longer and longer lockdowns. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. I think everyone's just pretty much had enough at this stage. To be honest with you, I think people have just had enough. Yeah. But you you notice it from uh, from everyday life, but also on social media. You notice the first lockdown, people were were keen to learn new skills and learn how to bake and, and do things with their kids that they'd never done before. This time, it's nothing. <laughs> People are just kind of resigned to the fact that we're at home. And we're just waiting. People are just sit- sitting, waiting, staring at the wall. Yeah. yeah. And where have all the webinars and Instagram live chats, uh, they've sort of dried up as well. They, they, it just went mental. Oh, I, I, there, there you go. Exactly, yeah. That's exactly part of, you know, that's... Um, you know, part of the whole trend, you know, people were really keen and uh, enthusiastic about making the most of their time mm. uh, during the first lockdown. But I think that novelty has worn off and people are just like, fine, you know, uh, people just don't care anymore. They just want this to pass yeah. as quickly and as quietly as possible. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, you, you see this huge drop off. People aren't doing anything <laughs> online. Yeah. You know, people have lost interest. And not to make light of it. Back, we need to get back to normal life, right? Yeah, no, definitely. And, and you're actually going to work today after this podcast. So it's obviously UK morning time. It's our evening time. So what are you allowed to do? Because uh, obviously you're a plastic surgeon as well as an injector. So what are you allowed to do in the public system in the NHS? So um, I actually, I don't work in the NHS. Oh. I don't work in the NHS at all okay. anymore. I, uh, I left the NHS after 13 years of service. Mm-hmm. And that was a couple of years ago. Yeah. And now I am purely private. Okay, fair um, enough. So my, my clinics are a mix of surgical and non-surgical consultations and treatments. And at the moment, you know, we are really, really restricted in terms of what services were we're allowed to provide so really they are limited to the to the medical to the necessary to the urgent uh, the essential kinds of services and anything that's purely cosmetic and purely elective and non-urgent um, firstly isn't allowed but also secondly i'm not really interested in doing it at the, at the moment to yeah. be honest with you I, you know i don't want to be exposing myself uh, or my patients or my staff to risk that is clearly out there, you know, they're, they're, they're 
the numbers are absolutely terrifying, the daily toll on uh, the virus load and um, the, the, the daily death count. So really, I'm not really interested in just you know going in for a bit of Botox or this or that and people making unnecessary journeys. Let's just put that to bed for a few months and we'll, we'll, we'll hopefully we'll reconvene at full pace um, come the summer. Mm, brilliant. Before we get um, too far down the track and talk about liquid nose jobs, which is the topic of today, do you want to just tell yeah. us a little bit about your background and how you trained? And obviously, we know you're a plastic surgeon, but it'd be good just to give the get, bring the lessons up to speed with uh, your story. Okay, so um, well, my name is Ayad Harb. I am a plastic surgeon trained in the UK. So I trained over here in at the University of Southampton. Uh, started my training in the year 2000 and completed my training in 05. And then from there, it was a case of uh, generic, um, generic medical training and surgical training up and down the country until I finally settled on plastic surgery as my speciality of choice. Um, and that was back in 2010. So that's when I started my specialty training. Um, and that is a still within plastic surgery, that's still a generic type of plastic surgery that's encompassing um, everything from burns to hand surgery, trauma, uh, breast surgery, cleft lip and palate pediatric, you know, all sorts of, uh, you know, plastic surgery is a very, very wide spectrum. And then slowly, slowly, you start to hone your skills and you start to decide what your preferred subspeciality is going to be. And for me, that was going to be facial plastics, um, cosmetic and reconstructive. And I continued down that path. Uh, working in the NHS, uh, I worked up to, I always tell my patients that I took the very long, very long and scenic route into <laughs> aesthetics because I did the full training pathway all the way from, you know, house officer up to consultant, uh, eventually finishing in, um, in the north of England as a consultant plastic surgeon, uh, specializing in uh, facial plastics, uh, trauma and skin cancer. So skin cancer reconstruction. Now, alongside that, um, I always, you know, I've always had a, I suppose, an entrepreneurial uh, spirit and uh, a little bit of a, uh, you know, an adventurous side to myself. And, you know, working in the NHS and the nine to five or nine to nine <laughs> um, was never going to be enough, I suppose, to fulfill that, uh, that ambition. So I always wanted to do something extra. And uh, aesthetics is a very you know, convenient type of, um, type of work that we do, and it fits so well. I mean, it's, it's, it's our domain, and plastic surgery is our domain. You know, we do aesthetics. We do uh, beauty and reconstruction and anti-aging. That's us. Mm -hmm. um, and so that was something that I was always going to do, you know. Uh, uh, but I, I suppose it needed, it needed a little bit of time to to uh, to to cook until it was the right time for me to to start down that path and in fact i did do that in 2012 2012 um i took my first training course i remember because it was the same morning that my boy was born oh. he was born on the 21st of january at midnight and at six in the morning i had to drive up to princess risborough <laughs> with with uh, Adrian Richards. Oh, I was with Adrian course. as well. He was my mentor. Right. He's obviously right. pumping so out some, some good course. people. <laughs> yeah. 
And that's when I started. You know, that's how it started, 2012. And uh, did my foundation course and went from there. Um, For me, I don't like to do things by by half. You know, I don't like to, you know, um, dance around a subject. You either do it properly or you don't do it at all, as far as I'm concerned. So uh, it's as a little bit of a part-time, you know, popping into a hair salon here or, or, or a, um, you know, a rented office here. I went straight in, did my course, and I opened a clinic. And, um, and there it grew, you know, slowly, slowly over the years until, you know, you know I find myself now at a full-time, full-time aesthetic occup- occupation uh, with multiple clinics in, in the UK. Quick question, because um, plastic surgeons doing injectables, obviously it's not rare, but it's not the norm. Did you get any pushback or a bit of scepticism yeah. from your colleagues? Yeah, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a quite an old-fashioned attitude that some plastic surgeons, especially the, the old guard, let's say, the old guard of plastic surgery, still hold that attitude that aesthetics and injectables are, I don't know, somehow beneath them or, you know, what we do. We're surgeons. We cut things. We cut people, right? And anything else, we'll let the beauticians deal with that. But I think for me, that, that's a very... Um, you know, I don't want to go as far as arrogant attitude, but that's a very short-sighted attitude, I would say. I think you only have to look across um, across the rest of the world, you know, what the US is doing, what Europe are doing. Um, it's the plastic surgeons who are leading leading the charge in aesthetics. Yeah. Um, and so the UK, it should, there's no reason why we should be any different. Um, so, yes, there was always that, that uh, negativity, and I did get a little bit of a, um, you know, skeptical, even hostile um, response when I when I you know opened the subject yeah. or suggested doing anything aesthetic with my uh, with my consultants at the time. But you know that really didn't deter me because it was, it was completely expected. Uh, it didn't deter me. It didn't put me off what I wanted to do, and that was mainly driven by the, the absolute belief that this is there is nothing wrong. In fact, there. I think the problem is you have to ask the question, why are you not? You know, why are you not doing aesthetic as a plastic surgeon? Why, why are you only offering the surgical? And yeah. if you're only offering the surgical, can you really then provide the patient with a fair assessment and a fair advice about what treatment they should have? Yeah. Um, and I, I think if you can't offer that full, that full spectrum of treatment, then you shouldn't be able to advise. And that leads nicely onto today's topic, which is the liquid nose job, the non-surgical rhinoplasty, whatever you want to call it, it's filler in noses. So, yes, um, <laughs> you know, as a plastic surgeon, someone who does facial surgery, etc., at what point did you think, well, hold on, there's a technique particularly for noses that may, in some circumstances, actually have more merit than surgery? And, you know, yeah. and, and yeah. were you kind of sceptical at first? Because I know there's still people even now who will claim or surgeons will claim you can't lift the tip with filler and and so on. So at what point did you decide, actually, this is a valid um, technique? Well, actually quite early on in my, uh, in my aesthetic practice, um, obviously within, within my normal work as a plastic surgeon, I was, I was exposed to rhinoplasty and uh, the surgical um, alternatives quite early on, and I've, you know I've been involved with that from from the outset. 
Um, but I've always found it, you know, a, a little bit of a, I don't know, it didn't sit completely comfortably with me all the time. Mm. You know, you see, you know, you see a nose that's, it's okay. You know, it didn't need that much. And then you, you, then you see the procedure that's done and it's actually quite a, quite an aggressive, um, invasive operation. And you think, gosh, there must be, I mean, there must be something easier. There yeah. must be something less that we can do just to tweak. And sometimes all you need is to tweak. And at the time, you know, I, I just wasn't aware of non-surgical rhinoplasty. I didn't know that it even existed. And, um, and so, you know, in my view, patients had a choice or, you know, a choice of two things. Either live with that nose that you've got, which is not bad, but you don't like it. Mm-hmm. Or have this big, aggressive, invasive, um, traumatic, <laughs> high-risk, high-cost operation. You think, well, there must be something else. And then um, during my training, when I was a trainee up in, um, in Coventry, there was, a, there was a conference called the Face, Eyes, and Nose Conference, um, held by, which was hosted by one of my consultants at the time. And that was a conference where one, um, it was a, it was supposed to be an international conference, but really it was just the, you know, it was a local, um, local attendance, but there was an international speaker. His name was uh, uh, David Constantian or Mark Constantian, sorry, Mark Constantian uh, from the US, a very experienced a uh, very charismatic plastic surgeon who came and spoke about his experience in um, surgical rhinoplasty. And after his talk, um, he basically summarized and said, when I do my surgeries, basically I'm doing the same things. Mm. I'm doing the same maneuvers ultimately, and these will help to treat probably about 90% of my patients. And these maneuvers are um, adding cartilage to three distinct areas in the nose. Yeah. Okay. The top, the bridge, and the tip. Uh, and by doing this, um, it will help to treat in some way or another about 90% of my patients. Oh, gosh. Okay. Well, if you can do that with surgery, why couldn't you do the same kind of maneuver, but with filler? Mm. Uh, and that's, that's where the, the three point rhinoplasty the three-point rhino was coined uh it was basically leaning on that experience from uh, from dr constantian and uh and that's how it that's how it started and so i started um uh you know trialing it out on on uh, friendly patients at my clinics <laughs> you know p- people who didn't mind a new treatment being experimented on them um i didn't have a a training course at the time. I didn't go on a nose training uh, course. I suppose I had the kind of anatomical um, knowledge and the technical experience to, to, I suppose, to just do it. Um, and I don't know whether that's wise or not, or whether that's advisable or not in this day and age, but that's what I did. And, uh, and so that's how it went on. Right. And where did you, I guess, first get your experience with fillers i mean you said you sort of just gave it a go and you know you had friendly patients but what were you first experimenting with and what techniques were you first using when you first got started so when i first started with uh with the nose treatment in particular it was uh those three points exactly and that's all i was doing 
um, treating the uh, treating the top, the middle, and the tip of the nose uh, with filler, and it was just standard filler, and you know whatever I was using at the time. I think at the time is maybe Perfecta, Sinclair Perfecta, mm-hmm. um, and I just started treating those three points. You know, you see a hump, and you fill above and beneath it, um, and you see a tip that's a little bit rounded, and you you inject into it and watch it rise. Um, but of course, you start applying your, I suppose, your anatomical knowledge and your surgical principles you start applying those surgical principles into the non-surgical sphere and those surgical principles they you know they dictate that if you are adding cartilage into the nose for example to change the external appearance then you are putting cartilage on top of the existing skeleton okay that um, bone and cartilaginous skeleton of the nose is really what dictates the shape of the nose mm-hmm. And that's what you're uh, augmenting. That's what, not, what you're manipulating if you were doing it surgically. And so I started doing it that way, finding that um, finding that skeleton, augmenting it, and just watching the skin drape on top as it normally would. And it seemed to work. And of course, the first results, I thought they were great. But looking back on them now, they were, they were okay and not amazing. But for me, they were, you know, they were, they were quite transformative. And of course, the patients were 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 happy, uh, and so it went on. And started you start to tweak your technique, and you change your uh, entry points, and you change your instruments, and then you change the fillers until you start you, you arrive at something that's a little bit more refined and, and something that yeah, I'm happy with now. What is it about our noses? And maybe as a plastic surgeon versus a non-surgical expert, you can kind of balance these views why why are people so conscious about them it is it's the middle of your face what everything else is surrounding and i i call it you know the the absolute the epicenter of the face and everything else is actually decorating the nose Mm -hmm. everything else in your nose your nose is the most prominent part of your face that your nose is the first thing that enters the room when you enter and the first thing that you look at when uh, the, the first thing that you see when you look at in the mirror yeah um and so, and so I think it's, it's important, I suppose, metaphorically, but also physically, it's very important. And it does impact, it does impact day-to-day life. You only have to speak to a patient who has, I don't know, some form of insecurity about their nose, whether it's a genuinely big or deviated or ugly nose, or if it's a minor little imperfection. Sometimes I find with noses, it's just as black and white as that. You know, if you like it, you like it. If you don't like it, you absolutely hate it, you know, and there's just no in between sometimes. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so, yeah, it just, it just does form this, uh, this kind of aesthetic epicenter in our face. And I think a, a really important um, principle that I follow is that the nose generally should be unnoticeable in the face. It should be unnoticeable. Okay? You shouldn't see it. You shouldn't notice it when you look at a person. And um, there are, there are, I suppose, more important priorities. When you look at a person, generally, we look at their eyes, we look at their nose, we look at their lips, we look at their skin, their hair, we notice these things. And then perhaps you might give a fleeting glance to the nose or the ears or whatever other features they may have. That is unless the nose is noticeable. If the nose is noticeable, whether it has a deviation or an abnormal shadow or it's uh, big or anything else like that, Immediately, we go straight for that, and we can't not see it then. Um, and then it starts to dominate the face. So my job um, 
is to, I suppose, to bring the nose back to its rightful place you know, in the center. But it's a, it's a, you know, it's a wise old man. It's not, it's not a, a cheerleader with, with pom-poms in the middle of the place. You know, it shouldn't be attracting attention. Yeah. Just to, I guess, further emphasize Jake's point, when I look at before and after photos and I'm on Instagram, I'm looking at Rhino Pluses. I know we're talking about liquid nose jobs today, but if you're looking at, say, a reduction, surgical reduction, yeah. it's the only procedure that I look at and sometimes I don't recognize the person. It entirely, yeah. you can look at someone, get their cheeks yeah. augmented, they can get their lips done, they can- you know, get a facelift and you can go, yeah, I can see that's the same person. But I often will go double take and go, hold on, is that, is that the same person? It, it's amazing yeah. that it can almost change someone's identity when everything else can still make them identifiable. Isn't it amazing? Yeah. Yeah. It's just, absolutely. It's, it's so true, isn't it? And that's, I think that's, that's a, a big fear that patients have when they approach rhinoplasty. Is that, you know, they see these huge transformations just from a nose job and they think, Gosh, I'm not going to recognize myself and I'm going to look so different. Uh, and in fact, that's a, sometimes a big struggle that patients have after rhinoplasty is that psychological impact. They look in the mirror and they don't see themselves anymore. Yeah. Um, so it's actually, it's, it is in reality, it is sometimes, um, you know, that's actually how it turns out. Yeah, People really struggle with rhinoplasty afterwards because they, they don't recognize themselves. They don't know um, themselves. So it's true. It's true. <laughs> God. Here we go. <laughs> but I think that's 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 one of the that's one of the beauties of the non-surgical option is yeah. that it doesn't it doesn't do that it doesn't change the way you look you look um, weirdly the same but different you know it's uh, it's quite a it's, it's quite something. Just say I completely agree. I, I sort of asked that more for there there'll be a lot of listeners who don't know much about you know the liquid nose job or even nose jobs and. You'll get some people like, you know, parents whose whose son or daughter wants to do something with the nose and they're like, Oh, why do you care? It's just a bump on your nose yeah. and so on. Yeah. But it but it, like you say, that bump is is the thing that's sticking out. That's the thing that's not right. And that's where your, your uh, attention is yeah. sort of drawn to. So I completely agree. Totally, totally. And it, you know, it's not it's not a uh, it's not a thing that you, you tend to grow out of. Mm. Um, you know, I've met patients, I mean, generally I you start to notice your nose at about the age of 12, 13. When you start to develop your adult nose, unfortunately, the rest of your face hasn't caught up yet. So you've <laughs> got a kid's face with an adult nose and you look all kinds of wrong and out of proportion. And so you notice your nose. Um, generally, the, the rest of the face catches up, but sometimes that insecurity doesn't leave you. you know? And um, through school or through the early development years, um, you know, if there's any element of Bully, bullying or uh, name calling or that tends to I suppose, uh, solidify that insecurity and that doesn't tend to leave you it really doesn't tend to leave you I've met patients you know who are 50 60 70 92 is my oldest patient 92 years old and she was still unhappy about her nose imagine that I met a 72 year old nurse who said I've since I was 15 Imagine this, I mean, 45 odd years or whatever it may be of hating your nose or being distressed or being insecure or uh, conscious about your nose. That's a long time to live with these things. Yeah. Um, and, you know, hearing these stories from people, uh, and these are totally normal, sensible uh, people who aren't after that kind of vanity pursuit. They are just normal people who have never had a treatment before that have always had this just deep insecurity about their nose. And having heard so many stories and so many experiences for people, 
I think for me, that makes the non-surgical rhinoplasty sit in a category by itself yeah. in the world of aesthetics and in the kind of the this, the aesthetic menu that we offer. The rhinoplasty sits in a category by itself. It is not about beauty or vanity or wanting to. It is you know a, a deeply, I suppose, held insecurity, and it can have massive um, psychological confidence related on on a person's life yeah this might be a weird question but um and i don't know what, what your background is i had but i'm jewish i've got a big nose we see sort of big <laughs> noses in the middle eastern sort of population north indian oh, sorry population. man i don't buy that at all yeah i've i've, <laughs> I've heard it all i've heard it all <laughs> okay but, and i'm gonna i've heard people blame their ethnicity their religion their dad okay <laughs> ultimately you can have this nose whether you're you know, you're Arab, you're Jewish, you're Indian, Greek, Roman, uh, whatever. Okay. I mean, the nose is the nose. And, and, and like I said to you before, it doesn't have to be a big problem. It doesn't have to be a big nose to be a problem for, the, for that person. It yeah. can be a little kink or it can be a little shadow, or a little dent or whatever it may be. So noses come in all shapes and sizes. Um, but like I said to you, you know, sometimes it's just black and white. You, you, you like it or you just hate it to the, to the extreme. Yeah. My, my question was going to be, do you notice any cultural particularities with some of your patient subgroups? I mean, we've had Persian plastic surgeons on, we've had <laughs> Paul Nassif on, we've had Koresh Tavakoli, <laughs> we've had, um, Dr. Shahidi, he's a rhinoplasty surgeon yeah, here. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. you know, the Iranian patients particularly are very, very particular about what they want and what they don't want. That's because they have breathing difficulties. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> one, of my, one of my close friends who's, who's Persian had a, had a rhinoplasty and he swears it was because he had breathing difficulties. And while they were there, they did, they did something to enhance what was already a good nose. That, that's the story. That's okay. That's a story. And you, yes. you go with that. That's fine. You know, who's, who's, who are we to judge? I think, um, yeah, I think you do, of course, of course, you do see, um, you know, ethnic, cultural um, variations in, in the nose shape and size and things like that. Um, but they, they are quite broad categories, you know. I would never be able to say that a, uh, you know, a, a Middle Eastern nose looks this way, mm -hmm. okay, or this kind of shape or, or a black nose is like this. You can't, I don't think you can, um, and nor can you say that it, it looks this way, but it should be like this instead. You know, I don't think you can, you can um, make these sweeping statements. I think uh, I, I treat every nose as completely individual. If a patient comes in and they've got what is sometimes, you know, described as a typical, let's say, Asian nose with a, a dorsal hump and a drooping tip that doesn't project very well and it bends over when, uh, when the patient smiles, well, fine. You know that's 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 it is what it is. You can see that in you know black, white, um, and everything in between. Yeah. Um, and what they, I suppose, what the end result should be is completely individual as well. I can't say just because you are European, you need to have a perky French nose, and just because you are Asian, you need to retain that eth that ethnic, uh, um, you know, the ethnic character of your nose. Mm. Rubbish. You know, you can have whatever you want within reason. Yeah. But I guess sometimes you might find that, and I guess this is your job as, as a surgeon and someone that specialises in aesthetics, is sometimes people might 
end up wanting something that's not going to suit the rest of their face. Like I've seen it before sometimes. Oh, yeah. A man will get a rhinoplasty oh, yeah. and then all of a sudden it's effeminate. Like the nose in isolation looks nice, but when you stick it on a very strong face, it can sometimes yes. look unusual. So I guess that's part of the challenge as well as making it sit harmoniously with everything else. No, absolutely. I think absolutely you're right. Um, the, the nose, you know, sometimes you can say that a nose, you know, objectively is smaller is more slopey is more pert you know whatever but it just doesn't suit the person anymore you know they, they don't it doesn't fit on their face uh, and that's because it uh, it all has to be taken as a as a package you know, it has to be treated sympathetically with the rest of the face and i, I have trouble sometimes when you know when patients you, know, you mentioned the iranian or middle eastern you know i'm from lebanon and uh, you know we are we are no strangers to cosmetic surgery <laughs> Um, and you know, you see patients who, yeah, you've got a, you've got a pretty nose, but it doesn't suit you. You know, your nose suited you better before, even though it was slightly bigger or slightly different shape, whatever. Uh, and I think that's where, uh, I'm, I'm very comfortable with the non-surgical rhinoplasty because it doesn't, like we said before, it doesn't change your features. Your nose actually stays looking like your nose. It retains a lot of its character and and its proportion and all this kind of thing it's just what we tend to do with the non-surgical is that we're we're just going for those little niggles those little imperfections that bother you that you see in the mirror when when you look at yourself from certain angles and certain lights you know if only we could take away this well fine we can take away that with the non-surgical but you're not left with a nose that you know it's completely different to what you started with. you still look like you and it's um it's quite common for patients to have their treatment and, you know, they look in the mirror and they are absolutely delighted. They're transformed. It's fixed everything. And they go home and no one notices, not their parents, <laughs> not their partners. No one notices. And sometimes that's good. And sometimes that's not so good because they're expecting a big reveal <laughs> and no one, it turns out no one cared. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. Now I, we normally do a disclaimer at the start of every podcast anyway, just a general one, but, before we get into the specifics, I thought I'd just do another one because, you know, the non-surgical liquid nose job, it's quite high risk. Um, I would suggest that people get some special training, whether it's from yourself or, or someone sort of experienced in, in noses. So please, if you're listening, don't go and have a crack at a nose after listening to Ayad and, and us chat. It's, um, it's, <laughs> it's highly um, yeah. high risk and, and, you know, catastrophic com- consequences, even if rare. So yeah, guys, please yeah. don't have a crack. So what are the indications for a liquid nose job? What, what things can you do with filler? Um, so you can treat most things with non-surgical rhinoplasty. Um, in clinic, you know, I think 90, 95% of the patients that I receive, I'll be able to, to help in some way. Yeah. Okay. Um, the most common complaints that I hear from patients are uh, relating to the shape of the nose. I have a dorsal hump, a hump on the uh, on the bridge of my nose that I see mainly from the side profile or from certain angles. Yeah. Or I have a tip that's not well projected. You know, it's just curving down. It's a little bit bulbous. It's rounded. It doesn't have the contour that I want. Or I can contour it with makeup, but without makeup, it, the light doesn't sit very well. Yeah. Um, other things like, you know, slightly more, uh, I suppose, niche or unusual things, um, deviation, asymmetry, um, scars. And I think a big category are the patients who've had surgery in the past. Yeah. They've had surgery, they've ended up with a slight imperfection, whether you know it's a collapse or a symmetry or whatever it may be. 
and they want that corrected. Uh, and the, the thought, the prospect of repeat surgery absolutely and rightfully terrifies them. Yeah. Do, do you see um, a revision of a surgical rhinoplasty an indication or do you see that as high risk and not suitable unless it, in very experienced hands like yourself? Oh, gosh. I mean, um, let me tell you what, what you said before in, in your disclaimer, which is very, very wise. Um, every nose, still till now, every nose terrifies me. Mm. With every injection, you know, I'm holding my breath and I'm waiting for that blanching or for that you know, slight um, evidence of any occlusion or problem. Yeah. Noses are high risk and... Post-surgical noses are in a in a different stratosphere altogether. You know, they are in a different orbit of risk. Um, and that risk doesn't come just from, you know, injecting into an artery, okay, to cause a vascular occlusion. The skin is so sensitive and the blood supply is so tenuous mm. that even a little bit of additional tension or pressure on the skin and just shut off the blood supply to a whole region in the nose. It's, it's absolutely critical that um, for, for anyone who, or any kind of cosmetic provider to take great caution, and I can't really overstate that, I, great caution when treating post-surgical noses. And for patients, um, just don't do it with someone who's a novice. Absolutely just don't do it with someone who's a novice. There is so little margin for error with post-surgical noses. Um, you really, you need to be absolutely, absolutely on your guard as a, as a provider um, and be able to spot the smallest and most subtle um, signs of an impending problem. Yeah. Uh, for me, I, you know, I, perhaps I started um, doing noses perhaps too early um, in hindsight, you know, I, I, I think about some of the cases that I've treated and I absolutely tremble now, retrospectively tremble. Yeah. I should have been trembling at the time. Thankfully, I've, I've you know, I've got away, um, I've got through my career so far without any kind of disaster, thankfully. But I suppose the more you do, the more you become aware of what could happen. So you end up doing less and less with time yeah. and becoming more and more cautious and frightened, frankly, frightened uh, by, by some noses. I still treat, you know, I think in my practice, about 20, 25% of my patients now are post-surgical. I treat a lot of post-surgical um, noses. And of course, they come also as a spectrum. Some are really easy, really straightforward, and some are just um, just terrifying. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, are there any categories of cases where you would say the liquid nose job isn't suitable? I mean, contraindications or, you know, certain expectations or certain anatomy yeah. of a nose where you just go, you know what, we're not going to yeah. go there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, of course, I mean, with, I suppose with, uh, with any um, treatment, you've got to know when, when it's suitable and when it's not, and you've got to be able to advise the patient appropriately. Um, patients with, Unrealistic expectations, patients who want a smaller, physically smaller nose, which is thinner and the nostrils don't flare out and this, and go have surgery. You know, only surgery is going to achieve that. Yeah. Patients with big noses, you know, patient with a big nose, and you know it 
when you see a patient, you think, God, that's that's big. Okay? <laughs> you, need, you, you know, that needs to that needs to be smaller. Is that what you say? And, and you know, I, I don't mean that in a in a in a uh, you know, I don't mean I would never mean that to be offensive yeah, in any way. Of course, but, yeah. You know, you genuinely think for the patient's sake, they would look better yeah. with a smaller nose, right? Because it's dominating their face. It's, it's taking up too much uh, real estate on their face and it's, it's dominating the attention. So yes, big noses, patients with unrealistic expectations and those patients who are just frankly too high risk, uh, their nose is just too tight, too scarred. There is no space for maneuver. You think with those, listen, um, don't, because you've got to balance risk and benefit here. And the benefit you're going to get is minimal, but the risk is probably, you know, up in the 70, 80% of uh, complication. I wouldn't do it. You mentioned um, nasal or nostril flaring. Have you seen, or, or do you use the technique where you can actually put filler around the, the nasal valve to sort of control that a little bit? Have you seen that? I've that seen techniques really for um, reducing, or I suppose improving airflow uh, by injecting around the valves. Mm-hmm. I've seen techniques injecting around the nostrils or under the nostrils to help lift and reduce that flare. Yeah. I'm not entirely convinced. I'm not entirely convinced. I haven't seen any amazing or longevity of results to, yeah, okay. to, I suppose, to persuade me to go down that path. For me, I, I want to do things that work and I want to avoid things that are not going to help but you know expose the patient to that risk anyway yeah mm. so no i don't i don't really those patients who you know complain about nostril size or nostril um flaring or nose width listen you know non-surgical has its has its limits has its ceiling you can't treat everything just like you can't treat everything with um surgical rhinoplasty you know you have to know what the limitations are for um for every treatment and if the patient's not happy, with well, the great. They've made your mind up whether to treat or not then. Good answer. Yeah. I agree. It's high risk. <laughs> <laughs> so with the um, we had the discussion around lockdown and obviously the UK's, you know, been locked down for a while and, and it's still going. So I'm assuming that Zoom has become a big part of your of your practice in terms of consulting people. Yeah. And, and how's that go for you? I'm assuming there's some challenges with uh, the way that cameras on certain iPhones or computers yeah. sort of yeah. distort someone's nose. How, how does that work for you? Well, it's, it's very true. Yeah, I mean, I've moved all consultations to virtual consultation. I'm not consultations uh, unless patients are coming in for treatment. Um, it's just to avoid, you know, reduce the amount of contact and the number of patients in clinic. So, um, yeah, that does come with its own challenges. You know, you can't really see fully what the nose looks like. You can't you know the lighting sometimes plays tricks. And a big part of the nose assessment is actually feeling the nose. You know, you just put a hand on the nose and feel the skin and how flexible it is and how thick the skin is and how much, you know, capacity it has to be corrected. So that is, um, that's a real challenge, actually. But I have to say that, uh, you know, for a, for a few years now, I've, I've been doing a lot of virtual consultations. I suppose patients just send in photos all the time. They send in their photos mm-hmm. um, and they ask for a... Uh, an assessment or a predicted result. And I've been doing that and I've become quite, um, I suppose, quite skilled at predicting what a nose could turn out like in my hands. I'd love to see the DMs you get on Instagram. (laughs) Right. 
I can, I can, you know, I know what I can do with filler and I know what's achievable with filler. And so I'm able to provide the patient with a fair impression of, uh, of the kind of result that they can get. So moving to Zoom and these virtual consultations, yes, it has its challenges, but it's not completely removed from my normal comfort zone. So I'm, I'm okay with it. Okay. And well, are you using a, a software to predict how they're going to look, or is this are you sort of doing some sketching like Subio, or how does it? How do you normally um, let them know? Facetune, what it's Facetune, right? Facetune, okay, absolutely. <laughs> so there is a good use for it. There's a positive okay. to Facetuning, okay? Facetune, you know, with you know, or or any kind of similar thing where you're able to um, tweak, you know, uh, tweak the, the the picture. You're able to augment in certain areas to um, to make the shape that you want to see. And if you think that's a realistic augmentation that you can make with filler, great. Why not? It's a, you know, it's a useful tool. Um, there are, of course, more, much more complex and, and dedicated softwares out there that will do the job for you. But I actually, I like to do it by hand. Mm. I like to do it by hand myself uh, because ultimately that's what I'm going to be doing in the clinic. So I don't want a software to tell me what's possible. I want to, I want to, you know, experiment and see what would look good for that patient, mm. where adding filler would help. I'm going to have to tell you have a play now. Do, do I need to upgrade to a pro account or can I do it with the basic account? <laughs> <laughs> basic, absolutely. <fine. laughs> okay, fair enough. Did, did he tell you he was Jewish already? <laughs> he doesn't want to pay for the upgrade I had. I don't want people thinking I'm FaceTuming my before and afters. I don't well, want an account with them. I was just going to ask. I mean, I think... Is there any risk with you not like patients holding you to that? Because I'm assuming this is just a prediction, right? Sometimes things don't always go yeah. 100% according to plan. Is there some risk there? Of course. Yes, of course there's risk. And that is, you know, I provide the, the photos not as a, a definitive predicted result. This is just an impression of what might be possible or what your nose could look like if it was a slightly different shape. Now, before we get into the technique, it's probably worth not even flagging again. We've sort of touched on it, but why is a nose so high risk? I mean, what particularly makes filler in a nose, you know, a danger zone? And can you just sort of explain a bit of the controversy around it as well? So um, I think um, as far as I'm concerned, um, all fillers carry the same risks. Correct, okay? yeah. All fillers carry the risk of, you know, bruising and bleeding and redness and vascular occlusion and blindness. And that goes, you know, for everything from lip filler to nose to tear trough, cheek, forehead, whatever it may be. Um, anything can be made a disaster yeah. with fillers. Okay. If you're not careful, you can, you can really do some damage to people if you're not careful. The nose in particular, you know, it has a very, um, very rich blood supply. It has some big vessels within it. It's a small area with a lot going on, mm. okay? It's a small area with a lot going on, and it's a small area that needs a lot of little injections. And the more that you do, the more that you inject, the higher the risk. Add to that the fact that there are end arteries in the nose. Yeah. <clears throat> so arteries that don't have a collateral blood supply. And if those arteries are blocked, then... Um, you know, then you're stuck. There's nothing that's going to compensate for that. Then all of these things compounded, you know, I suppose, um, make the nose a particularly high-risk area. Um, on top of that, there are also, within the nose, and especially at the tip 
there are there is no real pattern or predictability to the blood supply or where the veins and arteries will sit or indeed which direction they run yeah okay so typically you know that the, the blood supply on the nose runs from top to bottom from the from the outside in but on the tip it's a little bit of a roundabout really and and uh, arteries will be going left right up and down and um I think that also adds to the risk because it may you may not spot a vascular occlusion because it's not where you're expecting to see it. Yeah, yeah. You may inject here, and actually, it may occlude over here on the side. And you, if you don't appreciate that, then you're you're going to um, you're going to miss it. Um, so that yeah, the nose is a particularly high risk um, for occlusion. I suppose uh, for blindness as well. You know, and in the in the in the in the articles in the texts um for blindness you know out of the hundred and something cases that have uh, been reported um a lot of those the majority of those actually in the nose um sadly so um you know that's that's always going to be um that's always going to be a risk that people have to appreciate have to um try and reduce that risk um, but I, I don't think it's completely avoidable what i normally say for uh, for people who are training in noses or for my patients is that while we can't eliminate risk we can't make this this a risk-free procedure um, the blood supply will always be the blood supply the unpredictability will always remain in the nose uh, but what we can do is I suppose, appreciate that, work with it, and try and reduce the disasters. So I think that the disasters like occlusion, necrosis, blindness. We'll come on to that a bit later. But going back to the data and stuff, and, and actually we put out some questions on our Instagram story a few days ago to sort of get some listener questions. It was interesting how many uh, you know, um, non-medical pe- people sort of said, oh, yes, I've heard that with noses you can go blind, but there wasn't the association with any filler. And so it's almost like the nose has yeah. it's got this sort of um, myth around it that that's the yeah, only one that you can go yeah. blind with. And yet if you look at the data, yeah. lips are, are certainly up there in terms of the number yeah. of blindnesses um, as well as temple and forehead. So it's that sort of central area yeah. of, the, of, the, of the face that seems to be the problem area. And presumably that's related to yeah. the vascular tree. So what type of filler are you using predominantly when you're doing the, the liquid nose jobs and which ones have you tried in the past and, you know, why aren't you using them anymore? Mm. I've tried them. Um, I've tried different fillers in the past. I've tried hyaluronic and non-hyaluronic acid fillers. Um, now I wouldn't be so brave as to try mm. non-hyaluronic acid fillers. I'm, I'm absolutely settled and convinced that we should only be injecting hyaluronic acid in the nose. Do you mind asking, um, uh, us asking which brands and, you know, types? Yeah, so I've, I've tried and I've used um, Juvederm products, mm-hmm. Voluma, uh, Volux. I've tried uh, Restylane Lift. I've tried Perfecta uh, Subskin. Mm-hmm. Um, I've tried even the lesser known things like Princess Fillers and things like that. And eventually I've settled on Tioxane, TSL, Ultra Deep as my choice of filler. And so that's my preferred filler. Um, the reason for that is that I found that it, I suppose it, it, it's the most predictable. It gives the most predictable results with the least variation yeah. in the result in terms of 
longevity, in terms of um, swelling, in terms of um, you know that post post treatment recovery. I suppose I just found it the most predictable, and it works well in my hands. Yeah, excellent. And do you use only one filler for all areas of your three point rhino? You've never needed uh, you know a different no, I, one, no, a thinner do, one, a thicker one. I do mix one. and match. Absolutely, I do mix and match. Um, generally, generally it's ultra deep be ultra deep because that is that's going to treat 90% of my patients who are looking for that dorsal hump correction who are looking for that definition and who are looking for that tip um, refinement and lift yeah but uh, ultra deep is a very very thick viscous prop and it needs to be injected in a in a certain um, location in a certain place at a certain depth to make sure that it stays you know, well hidden and it's doing its job without causing any problems. In some in some noses where the skin is just super thin, really, really thin noses, um, or the skin is really tight from scarring or post-surgical, then you, I need to switch down to a much, a much thinner, more forgiving type of product. And uh, I've used everything from ultra deep to RHA1, in the nose, RHA1, which is the thinnest of the uh, hyaluronic acid fillers in the TSR range. Yeah. I've even used that in the nose, but very, very superficially. What's the longevity that you're getting, or patients are getting out of these treatments? I'm assuming it's probably longer than other areas of the face because it's it's so it's such a static area compared to areas that move more. Yeah, yeah. Um, my normal advice is that you know it's it's going to be a, a year before before I'll I'll do this treatment again for you. Um, but what you tend to find is the year comes round and the nose still looks all right. You know it still looks good. It's not the same. It's not the same as when you first did it day one. Of course, you know this is ultimately hyaluronic acid and it's going to be broken down gradually over time. But it still looks good and it certainly has not reverted back to its old shape. Um, in terms of, I suppose, when you do the treatment again, yeah, probably I set a minimum of a year for my patients. Um, I suppose that's, I think that's important because what you don't want to do is keep repeating the treatment, keep adding filler every six months, like I sometimes see. And before you know it, you end up with just this potato sitting in the middle of the nose. It's just (laughs) ill-defined. It has no character. It has no structure. It's just a blob full of filler and that's no good you know that's no good that the nose has to look like the nose and so i set a minimum of one year and the longer the better uh, i've seen patients three years down the line and they still look good and they're still happy but i suppose they've seen a return a little bit of their bump or they're starting to notice things fine then we'll do it then i think what's important to say is at repeat treatments, you tend to find that you're able to achieve something that you would never even imagine at the first treatment. You're able to push it a little bit further. You, the skin has this extra flexibility uh, and pliability about it so that you can actually manipulate it even further and lift it so that by the second treatment, you know, the shape that you've got is just entirely different to what you started. Mm. Um, with, with fillers and other parts of the face, I think even with the same fillers, even with ultra deep and the thicker um, hyaluronic acid fillers in, let's say, the, the cheeks or the chin, um, I think these areas are obviously more mobile. They're, there's a lot more going on, but also they 
they're changing a lot more than the nose is with time. You know, um, around the mid face here, under the eyes, for example, you know, that's that can be affected almost day to day by weight gain, weight loss, illness, dehydration, tiredness, stress. All these things have an impact. And of course, aging. Whereas the nose tends to just sit there pretty stable, pretty dormant. Um, not much affects it in the short term. Um, over the longer time periods, of course, let's say 10 years, yeah, your nose does change a little bit. It does collapse. It does lose a bit of its support and the skin starts to change. But uh, the fillers the, the fillers tend to just last. Yeah. The and last. let's say you did a, a nose today. At what point do you get them back for, for review and potential um, sort of top up, if you want to call it a top up? How many, you know, what mm. sort of percentage of people are you having to add more to? And how long do you give yeah. that? Not, when I do the treatment, my normal advice is that um, this is, you know, this result now is probably a little bit generous and it's going to drop a little. Yeah. Okay. And that's, I suppose, that's inevitable and expected because you imagine when you use filler and you lift out the skin, you lift it up and it becomes quite tense. The skin naturally has a, uh, I suppose, a desire to push back, yeah. to return to its old shape. And that normally happens in that early first few weeks kind of period, okay? Um, so by about two, three weeks, you know, most of the swelling has settled and the nose or the, the skin has returned back to a little bit of its old shape, or I suppose it's long-term stable shape. If at that stage, patients are not entirely satisfied with their, with their nose, then they can return or a checkup, a touch-up, a top-up, call it what you want. Um, but I probably will see maybe one in seven yeah. or one in 10 patients. So between 10 and 14% of my patients will return um, at about the four to six week mark mm -hmm. okay, um, for, for a touch-up. Uh, the rest, I don't see for another year at least. Um, that may be because they're really, really unhappy, but actually mostly it's because they are I mean, they're happy with their nose and they will just come back for a top-up when it's needed. I've got an interesting question that I've just thought of, um, you know, because I see some interstate patients as well. They travel, you know, a long way and you've got people I know coming from all over the UK and potentially beyond. Yeah. Uh, does that put extra pressure on you to sort of deliver on the day and, oh, you know, I don't yeah. want to come back because I'm flying back to Scotland or whatever it may be like you if, if you, yeah well exactly what can you do yeah. but do you explain what that to them do? and say yeah. look if you, if of you... course yeah absolutely it adds extra pressure on you actually because you know you desperately you want to give these patients the best result and you want that to stay but you know that just because they've come from you know i've had patients come from nepal i've had patients fly in from argentina and arizona <laughs> and, and all over the place and australia and new zealand and you think, oh gosh, you know, just because you've come from there, it doesn't mean that you're not within that, you know, 10% who might need a top up. What yeah. can I do for you? Um, I hope it doesn't. And I'll sometimes even push it a little bit further mm. and almost over treat, right? So that, you know, when they look in the mirror, they say, uh, do you think you put too much in here? Or is the tip supposed to be that big? Um, sometimes I will overtreat, just anticipating that drop and hoping, keeping my fingers crossed yeah. that, you know, it, it will fall to somewhere that's just about right. But yeah, I mean, that's, that's an added pressure, but you have to have that conversation as always. You have to have these conversations with the patient before they sit in that chair, yeah. before they pay any money, you've got to have a full and frank 
um, uh, conversation with them about what the likely result and what the what the potential for needing top-ups and, and all this kind of thing, that all has to be explained beforehand. It's no use emailing back to six <laughs> weeks later saying, oh, yeah, 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 you're, you're, yeah you need a top-up. Well, tell me that, Doc. Yeah. <laughs> what about um, preparation for the procedure? Is there anything that you recommend that your patients do, I guess, different from, say, having a regular filler treatment? Is there any, and is there anything people anything people can do to like reduce their risk of complications or adverse adverse events? Um, I don't think there's anything that the patient can do. I think the, the majority of the adverse events are, um, you know, clinician related, you know, mm-hmm. we are the ones who cause complications, not the patients, as much as we like to sometimes push the blame onto the patient. It's us. Okay. And most of those complications happen at the time of treatment, whether that's a, um, you know, a bleeding or bruising related thing, whether that's an infection related thing. Okay. Yeah, sure, the patient may wear makeup, but it's your job to remove and make sure that this, the field is sterile before you inject, right? Yeah, um, yeah the patient may be, you know, um, prone to bruising. Yeah, sure, okay, you know, they can't help that and there's literally nothing they can do about it. Um, so it's your job really to um, reduce the risk of complications. My general uh, advice to patients, you know, after the treatment, I suppose they can look after it in terms of avoiding um, makeup for the first, let's say, 24 hours until those injection points are healed, um, avoiding traumatizing the area, rubbing the area, exposing their, themselves to um, extreme environments like the sun or the sauna or heat, steam, that kind of thing that may worsen, exacerbate swelling and, uh, and slow down that, you know, that healing process. But apart from that, no, I, I'm generally pretty easy going on my patients do you give them any advice about sunglasses or normal glasses or sleeping on their front those kind of things that pretty hard to control yeah i mean sleeping what can you do if you if you turn over onto your front halfway you know midway through the night what can you do exactly (laughs) so i don't stress that too much as much as possible try you know you can sleep on your back or on on your side that's okay Try not to face plant into, into bed. That's <laughs> obvious. Um, in terms of glasses, you know, I think my advice is that if you're able to, avoid it okay, for a week. Uh, if you're not able to, if you need your glasses for, you know, getting on with life or work or driving, for God's sake, please wear your glasses. Yeah. Um, I think uh, glass, it, I think the filler is, is remarkably resilient, actually. And it just, it won't just press down if you touch it or, inadvertently brush against it while you're getting dressed or washing or putting your makeup on, you won't. Yeah. But when it, especially when it's swollen in the first couple of weeks, when there's a bit of, you know, fluid in the area, it's a little bit spongy and it's a little bit boggy, um, then glasses can sit and they can leave a mark. Yeah. And sometimes patients panic that they've ruined their filler, but that's not usually the case. That's usually just a mark in the edema, in the swelling. Yeah. And that will resolve itself just as the skin would resolve itself if, it left, if the glasses left the mark on it anyway. Yeah. I was gonna say, I've um, had filler before and I've noticed on one. No, I've, you I've, haven't, I, have you? <laughs> well, you've done it a few times. You forget, <laughs> you're forgetting your own patients. Um, well, I've had like a cold or a flu and I've like had like this crazy swelling that's come out of nowhere. And I was wondering, could that happen in the nose as well? And would there be any risk of complications? You're, you're talking about patients that are, you know, high risk that have had rhinoplasty and extra pressure can add complications or issues yeah. is that something that you've you've heard yeah. of or experienced 
Yeah, absolutely. You know, this this kind of inflammatory reaction that you can get um, in fillers or any kind of implant that you have in your body, to be honest, uh, but fillers mo- most commonly. Yeah, they can swell if you have some kind of viral illness, if you have some kind of, um, and let's say sinusitis in the area, you've got a general um, swelling in, in the vicinity. Yeah, the filler can react to that. And uh, usually that's a self-limiting thing and it will subside as the original virus or illness or inflammation settles. So normally it's a case of, um, uh, you know, uh, just I suppose treating the, the symptoms and expectant therapy, okay, just waiting for things to settle down. It's nothing to insurance, of course. Patients, of course, will panic if their nose swells up a little bit and it starts to look a little bit you know, like uh, the first day they had it, they might start to panic. <laughs> no need to panic, you know, just wait. Um, I have had a couple of cases where actually the patients had a real, you know, a real um, infection um, somewhere else in their body. And that's uh, created a secondary infection in their filler. And I think on one or two occasions um, in my time, I've had to actually treat the infection here in the nose Uh, with antibiotics. I've had to dissolve it once Mm. because of a secondary infection. And this is maybe three or four months after the original treatment. Wow. Yeah. Can you now talk us through your three-point rhino? I mean, you, you alluded to you do uh, the bridge, the sort of the super tip, which is sort of the bit where the, the bone and the cartilage meet and then the tip itself. But what are you actually doing? What needle are you using? What volumes are typical? And, and what layer are you in? Mm-hmm. Okay. So uh, generally the principles are, principles of my, my treatment are, uh, to inject deep, okay, so on the periosteum, on the perichondrium, injecting deep, like I said before, augmenting the skeleton of the nose, mm-hmm. not trying to manipulate the skin. Leave the skin as a blanket that will drape over whatever you're doing underneath. Yeah. Okay. The skin is where all the clockwork is, that's where all the, 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 the risk is. So stick to deep and just augment that. Uh, like I said to you, I, I inject, um, I use, TSL um, ultra deep, okay, and that's a thick enough filler to create the result that I want without needing too much filler. Yep. I want to avoid using big volumes. I want to use small volumes, and the average volume that I will use is about 0. 0.6 or 0. 0.7 of a mil. Okay, okay, um, that's the most you know the, the most noses. Some will need a lot more. Some will need a lot less. Frankly, it doesn't really matter. You use as much as you need. Um, and so um, that's the filler I want to use. But I also, at the same time, I want to use a tiny needle. Uh, and the reason for that is I want to, I suppose, reduce pain and discomfort for the patient, reduce the risk of bruising and bleeding. Um, and I want to r- retain that control to be able to inject tiny amounts, tiny amounts uh, of the filler in micro, micro droplets. Uh, and so that I think for me, that's really not possible with the with the native syringe and needle that you can't, you can't have that degree of control over the uh, injection volume or over the uh, injection pressure. So I will transfer, I will um, decant into much smaller syringes, um, the BD 0.3 ml 30 gauge needles. Yeah. Um, and they, I suppose they have sort of satisfied those criteria for me. I'm still able to use the filler that I want, 
I'm able to use a 30 gauge needle. It's a small syringe, so I've got really good control without having to hold a huge syringe like this, which is six inches away from the patient's face. Yeah. <laughs> and you're able to control with real accuracy how much filler you're dropping. And it can be something as small as 0 0.01, 0 0.0, that's a tenth of a 0.1 of a mil yeah. um, with every droplet. Um, so that for me is, um, you know, my preferred technique and that, I suppose that gives me that control, but also that lends itself really well to the safety aspect, yeah. safety. Okay. With that, um, that little volume, that isn't going to cause any kind of disaster ever, you know, 0 0.01 of a mil isn't going to cause any kind of disaster. So, um, you know, you, you I suppose you, you, you do all of these uh, maneuvers, injecting deep, injecting in the center of the nose, trying to avoid the obvious anatomy that we know about, uh, but also um, you inject slowly, you inject at low pressure and at low volume. And all of these things compounded should reduce the risk of any disaster uh, occurring. So I normally start at the top of the nose. Okay, yeah. uh, I position myself at the head end of the patient. I'm working from behind or from their, from their top. I used to work from the side, but I found that working from the top gives you much better view yeah. of everything that's going on in the nose. Okay, Any little discrepancy or deviation or imperfection, you can see, you can see from that angle. So then I start from the top and I, I will uh, work on the, um, uh, on the radix, um, trying to raise that up to the level of the bump so that the bump is smooth, that it's blended in. Um, but also within within limits. I don't want to blend it in at all costs and end up halfway up the forehead. <laughs> so you know, that has to be tempered with a little bit of realism as well. Um, but making it as good as possible, as good as possible, as straight as possible without overshooting. Touching okay? on that point, so injecting, do, do you have an upper limit of where you go? Is it the eyelash or...? or yeah, uh, about, about, about the eyelash, about yeah. the eyelash. Okay. Um, I mean, sometimes it, it varies so much because... Some patients just don't have any space at all. Mm. They've got such a shallow, such a shallow radix and a high bump. They've almost got no angle to start with. Yeah. So you, sometimes you have to push it a little bit further, but make sure you tell your patient, listen, we're going to have to start a little bit higher. I promise not to end up up your forehead. And I promise to retain that angle, that break between forehead and nose. Um, but you have to then maybe just work a little bit higher than you would ideally want to. Um, but yeah, in, in most people, I tend to aim for about the level of the upper eyelashes, my upper limit. Okay. And then your second point, just tell us about that. And then uh, I work down the bridge of the nose. Okay. So we walk our way down the nose. Okay. We start at the top and we're walking down the nose. Now you will uh, reach this area about the level of the um, of the upper lateral cartilage, okay, where the lower lateral meets the upper lateral, the super tip break. So if and I, you've if, also got these. If our listeners are listening, the side. if they want to touch their nose, is it sort of that break between the, the bony yeah, bit and the soft bit? Just here. Yeah. Okay. And you tend to find this little uh, dip, this little shadow that sits on the side of the nose here mm -hmm. in most people. Yeah. That's my, I suppose, my second area, my second point. And uh, in most people, actually, this doesn't need filler on the dorsum. Yeah. This needs filler on the side. Because okay? in most people, 
this already projects too high. This is part of the problem, you know, yeah. it projects too high. So that doesn't normally doesn't need filler on the bridge, on the dorsum. It needs filler slightly to the side, to the lateral aspect, to improve that contour and that uh, and then to blend in any little shadows that you might see. And then, and that's also injected on the cartilage. Okay? Yeah, it's injected deep. Okay, as much as possible, injecting in the midline. And the skin here it tends it, to be a little bit more fixed and and thinner, so even smaller yeah. volumes. I'm guessing. Tiny volumes. In fact, this area is the most, probably the most notorious for recurrence or early needing top up kind of recurrence is this area yeah. that it didn't need much in the beginning. You know, it wasn't a big deal, but because the skin is so tight and there's so little space, so little flexibility, um, it needs to, it tends to come back and it, it tends to push back quite, uh, quite a lot. And it, that's the area mostly that needs a top up after yeah. the first few weeks. And we reach the tip, and the tip is treated in exactly the same way. Okay, so we're injecting deep, we're augmenting the cartilage. Of course, you've got to remember that the tip is made up of two cartilages that are this kind of C-shaped cartilages, and in between there's a gap. So going midline at the tip, you're probably going to end up like in just open space rather than on top of a cartilage. Yeah. So you've got to be aware of that uh, anatomy and treat the cartilage where it is. Okay, so I tend to go either side, paramedian, either side of the midline, touching the cartilage, and then dropping a small, small uh, bolus of filler, usually about 0.05, so half of a 0.1 of a mil on each side. Yeah. And that, of course, is not injected in, that injected in five boluses. Sorry, just say that again. We lost you for that last bit. It's not injected in... So that 0.5, five bolus at on each side of the cartilage yeah. is injected not in one bolus not in one push but in five little drops yeah it's really important the tip is the one place that will give you the most trouble yeah okay that's the one place that's the most unpredictable um and so you need to be super 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 careful with how much you inject and how forcefully you inject the filler yeah now, not to get too technical, but I've just got my own question here because, uh, you know, I do noses as well. And I've seen you do hundreds of videos on your Instagram. When do you choose to go under the columella and when do you choose to go in the tip? I always go in the tip. Okay. I always, so as far as I'm concerned, lifting, defining, um, and uh, adding that point to the tip mm -hmm. and that contour comes at the top. I don't think you should or I should be lifting the tip from anywhere else. Yeah. Okay? I think that's, that's just going to create a little bit of bulbousness, a bit of roundness to the tip. Yeah. So the definition, the shape, the point, which is you know, part of the, the appeal of this uh, treatment, comes from that um, dorsal injection on, onto the tip. Yeah. Okay? This inferior injection is more for that overall lifting of the or changing the angle of the tip okay so we're lifting it up slightly with this injection but we're defining with that injection at the top yeah does that make sense it's not it's the, okay. the nasolabial angle when you look from the side that's right yeah. that's right okay so sometimes we have a short uh, anterior nasal spine it doesn't really provide that support for the most caudal part of the tip 
and that anterior nasal spine needs to be extended a little bit with a bit of filler. That filler is going onto bone. Yeah. That's going onto bone. I am not entering here and then filler up into my tip. I never do that. I yeah. never, never do that. I think that's brave, actually. It's quite brave. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to ask you about the uh, the Tinkerbell lift and why has it become so popular? What is it? Is it a? Is this a celebrity? Is this another Kardashian trend uh, or is this? <laughs> it's, it's just another one of these. <laughs> Like the fox eye lift and things. yeah, okay. <laughs> sorry, yeah, yeah, that's okay. <laughs> what what is I'm it sorry, for people who know, haven't heard about I'm it? I'm just I'm just tired of these just just fads that come along every now and then. You know, first we, we were foxes and cats and and Tinkerbells, and I went to fairies and and, and Peter Pan and you know, what the hell, <laughs> right? Everyone just stay sensible. We know exactly what you mean, right? So it's I mean it's purely a marketing thing. It's purely a, a you know a marketing. It's, it's and I find it a little bit. Uh, a little bit patronizing, actually, you know, that women want the Tinkerbell lift. Well, you know, it's just, no, they want, they want a well-defined tip. Just say it as it is, okay? Yeah. So I'm, I'm not a fan of these kind of, uh, these gimmicky type of things. Um, of course, you know, these things will catch on and they'll uh, create a bit of a stir in the media, but they'll die off just as quickly. So we tend to stick to, um, you know, uh, tried and trusted uh, techniques and descriptions for things. Mm. How tolerable are these treatments? For, like, if I was a patient wanting to get this treatment done, what should I be expecting in terms of pain? Are you using numbing creams? Is it sort of quite benign and, and tolerable? Um, I have to say that I get asked that question a lot. You know, patients are surprised. Oh, you don't use numbing cream? God, blah, blah, blah. I have never in my time since 2012, I have never used numbing cream for fillers. Never. Uh, not for noses, not for lips, not for any part of the face. Um, I think they are, they are well, well overstated in terms of you know, their, their impact on a treatment and the comfort level. Mm. And I think sometimes they can be to a, to a detriment, actually. I think uh, numbing cream can overpromise. They can put the patient in this false sense of security. Hey, I'm not going to feel anything. I've, got, I've had numbing cream on my face. Yeah. And then, wham. Here comes the needle, and suddenly it hurts, and they're surprised, and that element of surprise catches them. Okay, and also I think it puts the practitioner, the provider, in a false sense of security as well. It makes the practitioner potentially a little bit lazy, okay, a little bit less gentle. Yeah. Okay. Oh, the patient's got a numbing cream. We can go in with this twenty-five gauge needle. Come on, right? Um, so for me, I've never used numbing cream. I never use it. Um, you know, a needle is a needle. You're always going to feel a little needle prick. It's like, I suppose, the same sensation as plucking a hair. Yeah. yeah it's that kind of sensation. It's not a painful experience. You feel it. Um, but that's all that it is. I tend to employ various, I suppose, techniques to reduce pain, okay, for the patient, like using a very small needle, like using a super gentle technique like maintaining a very sharp needle, so changing it very often, Yeah. okay? Which is part of the reason why I use these small syringes and I'll only decant 0.1 into each one. So after a couple of injections, it's gone. We're yeah. throwing it away. We're starting with a new needle. Uh, there's, of course, there's anesthetic in the filler that makes things very, very comfortable because what people sometimes forget that most of the pain from filler, most of the pain from injection doesn't come just from the needle prick. 
it's the hydrodissection that comes when the filler is actually entering the tissues. That stretching of the tissues is actually what hurts. Yeah. Okay. So you do it gently. You do it um, uh, slowly at low pressure, at low force of injection, using a sharp needle, using a bit of distraction um, technique. You know, um, I've never really, really had any complaints about pain. I've never had any complaints about pain. Yeah. And um, while most patients will experience, you know, a little bit of a pinprick, and there are some areas that are more sensitive on the nose, let's say under the nose here on the on the tip. Um, I've never had anyone say, no, that was far too painful. I won't be doing that again. I totally agree. And the other thing I think about local is it can make the the skin quite red and sometimes vasodilated depending on what, you, what you're using and it can actually yeah. make the bruising yeah. worse. And then you can't see an occlusion if, if because their skin changes. I agree, I agree. And I think uh, local anaesthetic, especially when on the context of the nose, it can sometimes cause a little bit of swelling, a yeah. minor degree of swelling, a little bit of puffiness of the skin. And when we're trying to create, uh, correct these tiny, sometimes sub one millimeter imperfections, they tend they can disappear when you've got numbing cream on your nose, yeah. and you don't see them. But then you won't be able to give that patient the result that they expect. Yeah. Now, I'd, is it possible to have a bit of a candid chat about the things that haven't gone so well in your practice? You've done so many noses that you know, obviously, like all of us, you, you must have encountered your own occlusions or or issues that patients aren't yes. happy with. So what what's your yes. vascular occlusion rate and how many noses have you done? Um, okay, I mean, this is this is a conversation I, I quite candidly have with patients who ask, and no problem at all. Um, I think anyone who says that they don't get complications is one of three things. Either they haven't done enough, okay, or they're lying, or they've had a complication and not known it, yeah. okay? So... I don't know which one of those is worse, to be honest with you. Of course, I have complications, and everyone has complications. Yeah. Um, what I what I do is try to minimize the complications, and like I said to you, minimize the disasters. Yeah. What I can confidently and very happily say is that I've never had a disaster. Mm -hmm. uh, very early on in my career, I did have one um, one skin necrosis um, of a patient in London, and I I learned a lot from that from that lesson. Um. Overall, in my series, the overall uh, occlusion rate, I believe, was 23 cases of occlusion. Okay. In how Three many noses, sorry? 5,000. In 5,000. I'm going to do the stat, don't in, worry. <laughs> in 5,000. So three patients who had some element of necrosis. Okay. Um, one of those patients was this patient I told you about. She had quite a wide, wide area of superficial a sloughing of her skin, which recovered, thankfully, but, um, you know, that was a bit of a stressful time. One patient had a little tip problem here, a little skin um, uh, insufficiency in the blood, and one patient had a little area up here on the bridge. So, yes, um, I've had three cases of um, partial necrosis, skin sloughing. Um, thankfully, none of those have been full thickness, widespread, disastrous type of things none of those have not healed yeah. none of those have left any scarring yeah thankfully um i've of course i've never had any cases of blindness um most of my complications i suppose are of swelling that is perhaps a little bit longer uh, than expected yeah. redness that that goes on a little bit longer than expected uh, a bruise here or there 
an imperfect result, dissatisfaction. I put that in with my um, complication. Yeah. Um, I tend to quote overall a complication rate of 20% to my patient, 20%. Yeah. Whether that be a bit of bleeding at the time or a little bruise or necrosis. Okay. Overall, 20% risk. Yeah. Okay. Um, in my practice. So that's, you know, that's realistic and that's all encompassing. But that's also an, an important number for me to quote to the patients because even a little bit of bruising, if it can be avoided, why not avoid it? Yeah. Okay. So when a patient comes in with the smallest little thing, Oh, look, I can see it from this angle, doc. And listen, you're taking a 20% risk here. Okay. 20% risk. Is it worth a 20% risk? Are we going to make a 20% improvement to counterbalance? If not, walk away. Yes. Okay. If we're not going to do that, walk away. Because, you know, there's no point in even a little bit, a little bruise if it's, uh, if it's not necessary at all. Yeah. Now, you mentioned that you, you had a good learning experience from your first necrosis. What, what particularly did you learn and, and what are your protocols for, you know, in, in the event of a vascular yeah. occlusion? What do you do? So that was, that was going back about three or four years ago now. And um, from that, I learned, I, I think, I, I changed the way I was doing it. I started injecting a lot, lot less per, um, per bolus, a lot, lot less. And I changed the needle that I was using. And, <clears throat> and I stayed very, very vigilant for even the smallest, smallest change in the skin. And I suppose it's taught me to treat on suspicion. Yeah. If there's any suspicion of any anything in the skin, I'll just dissolve. I'm not interested in the patient going away and let's see how it goes. Yeah. So any suspicion, um, just get rid of it. You'll never get, you'll never regret getting rid of filler. Okay. But there is that chance, you know, where it might cause a lot of headache and hassle for the patient and a lot of grief for yourself. Um, so, yeah, that, that one was, uh, was a real learning point. Thankfully, and I think because I wasn't injecting big volumes, thankfully it wasn't a disastrous, widespread kind of complication. It didn't leave any scarring or long-term problems for the patient. Yeah. Um, but even so, that shouldn't have happened. That shouldn't have happened. And that doesn't happen anymore in my practice it just doesn't happen and it, and it can't possibly happen because of the amount that i'm injecting mm. there must be people listening to this that have had a treatment or they're wanting to have a treatment done and i think the difficulty is knowing who to go to who to trust how do you assess who's got the skill to do it so who would you recommend in terms of qualifications experience is it you know how, what do you uh, i guess define as someone that's an advanced injector how does the patient know who to go to I don't know. I don't know. I, honestly, I don't know. Do you know? I, I have no idea. I mean, you, you have to, if you look at our um, industry, our um, speciality, um, everyone is the same. We are judged on our Instagrams and everyone is the same. Everyone has the same Instagram with the same qualifications. I'm a master injector. That's a self-proclaimed title. <laughs> I'm an expert. Yeah. Okay. Advanced. An expert. Uh, advanced injector, um, whatever. Queen of lips. And everyone yeah. has the same befores and afters <laughs> and everyone says the same advice. And honestly, I, I, I can't make out who's good from, from who's not. Um, so it's really, really difficult, really, really difficult. Um, I think ultimately when it comes to the nose, you should treat it differently to any other part of the face. Um, 
you have to go to someone who specializes in noses, who does noses all the time. And that should be evident from their profile. It should be evident from their reviews. It should be evident from their befores and afters. And they should be able to talk about it confidently. Okay. Yeah. Ask them, how many, how many cases do you do? Yeah. Um, um, delegates or trainees who come on training is, listen, don't bother with noses. It's too much headache. If you're not going to do, I don't know, 50 a month, 100 a month, don't do it, right? Don't do it at all. It's just not worth it. If you're going to do two or three a month, don't bother because you will not learn, okay? You will not learn. You will not see enough to be able to distinguish good from bad, problem from, you need to, and I think that's the same for the patient. You need to go to someone who's just doing them all the time. They are obsessed. They are um, completely um, dominated by noses. Fine. Go to them. Okay. At least they will be able to um, assess you properly, treat you properly, and manage any complications appropriately. And I think ultimately when it comes to noses, whether it's surgical or non-surgical, you have to trust that person. Instinctively, you have to trust that person. Okay, You have to get on with them. And um, the most important part of the treatment is the after-treatment, is the aftercare. Okay? Yeah. Anyone can inject. Anyone can inject a, a nose or a lip or whatever. But um, it, the, real, the real test is how they treat you afterwards. Okay? Are they ready to pick up the phone to deal with a trivial problem, not a real complication? Or are they a shut-up shop who just put up the shutters and say, listen, you're on your own, mate. You've paid no, no returns. Yeah, you know, I think that's what you have to judge it on. Yeah, good advice. And that brings us last. Last, I'll start again. That brings you nicely onto my final question or or kind of comment. Tell us about your own in-house training that you offer. I mean, obviously you're in the UK, so maybe that's not super helpful for Australians who can't fly at the moment. But tell us about what, yeah. what you do in-house. So I've uh, I've been offering training for a while. It's always been quite low key. Um, you know, small group masterclasses and one-to-one training in clinic. Uh, but I think the, the, the whole lockdown coronavirus uh, thing has, um, I suppose, has changed the way I do things. Um, I now move to a predominantly virtual training setup. Uh, I'm offering uh, virtual seminars, training on all treatments, um, of course, most people will know me for the nose and will come to me for the nose. Uh, but we are categorizing the, or, or I suppose, dividing the, 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 the program into five separate areas, the upper face, mid face, the lower face, perioral, and the nose. And um, when it comes to the actual treatment, it's a, of course, it's a seminar um, where I will present talk about my uh, my approach assessment and uh, technique then i will demonstrate uh, the treatment up close and personal um, and some kind of interaction you're able to ask and critique whatever you like and then we'll have an extended q a at the end where people can ask and uh, inquire about any particular thing i find that it's, you know it's useful for um, I suppose beginners who just want to find out about what noses are all about and how I do it and how I get the tip lifted like this and more advanced who are looking perhaps to just refine the, their existing treatment. Um, and I'm not, I would never say that my technique is the technique or the only technique. It's a technique and it worked well for me. And you might pick up a few points 
that you will hopefully incorporate into your own technique to make you better. Brilliant. And you have very generously offered our listeners and uh, I guess anyone who comes across the podcast uh, a 20% off on your on your online training. So I think we've come up with a code. Yeah, why gonna, not? I'm going to quote it. It's I... Why not? So, so hold on. So how, firstly, where do they go to book the training? So they can, um, they can either book through the website or they can um, email or call the clinic and we'll be able to help them. Um, if they, I suppose, if they quote the uh, collaboration code or the discount code that you're going to um, provide <laughs> us with, um, I think we'll just keep that live. I mean, I, this just came off the top of my head, Jake. I don't know if it's <laughs> but uh, no, that's yeah. fine. I just wondered um, if they have to input it or or say it verbally. That was my main question. I think if um, if they, uh, they they will be able to input it at the time of booking, yeah, or quote it when uh, when they call up or email, and we'll be able to process that for them. Perfect. Well, so the- yes. Uh, the 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 actual training courses the seminars are obviously they'll they'll carry a certain fee but 20 percent off anyone's quoting the the podcast code amazing and the code is i a x i ad that's a y a d so i a x i ad and you get 20 percent off which is amazing and you know whilst we're not sitting here saying we're going to train you doing noses in a podcast i think if you want to do actually learn something in a formal way that's probably the best way of doing it learning from someone who's got a massive case series and we're super grateful for you giving up your time to come and have a chat i know you've got a busy clinic or, or something oh, going on very soon yeah. um so <laughs> hopefully when the skies open we'll get to catch up eventually and i'll eventually make it to your clinic which uh, i planned to do about two years ago when we first had contact yes, and unfortunately it never happened yes, i remember yeah yeah um what how do people get in contact with you other than you said your website? Do you have it what's your Instagram account where they can see all these thousands of cases that you've done? Can you just remind us? So they the, the main Instagram account for my uh for my clinic is Dr. Ayad Hub, um at Dr. Ayad Hub. I also have a personal um Instagram account which they may find real Dr. Ayad or the Academy account, which is uh Dr. Um, so all all three of those are possible ways of contacting. Obviously, you know the the main work is showcased on the clinic. Yeah, uh, perfect. And I had I've got one more bonus question. <laughs> this is from oh. a Dr. Yalda who works with you and who's moving to Australia. She wants to know why have you got such terrible fashion sense when you're not in your clinic. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't. I didn't quite pick that. Say that again. Sorry, I think I'll you ask you again for a minute. <laughs> so this is from. No, Doc- that's fine. That's He's fine. joking. <laughs> and particularly your slippers that you wear. You know at what? Home. This, this, this is what I. This is what I say to people. You know, I've, I've, um, I've always, I've never had a particularly, <laughs> um, a particularly good sense of uh, fashion. I tell people that I've grown into my forty-year-old fashion. Yeah, okay, yeah. I've always dressed like this, but now I'm comfortable with yeah. it. Okay? No, I, I know how you feel, Ed. So that's what Jake, I tell you. Jake got me to change my day, T-shirt four times before we denial, started. Yeah, despite the denial, she <laughs> she secretly loves it. Yeah, no, that's awesome. Well, I'll, I, I've promised to uh, I'll meet her for a coffee when she eventually moves to Australia, and we can pass the baton from from you to me or, or whoever when she starts working over here. So it's nice to have that link as well. <laughs> yes, indeed, it's great, great. Um, great girl, superb doctor, and a massive loss for me. 
but you know i she's um she's starting anew over there and i wish her all the best perfect and we wish you all the best stay safe mate and uh thanks again and we'll catch thank up soon thank you very much thanks i thank you mate thank you very much stay safe guys See you later, buddy. See you, buddy. bye For our latest news, upcoming guests and episode topics, follow us on Instagram at inside underscore aesthetics. During the week before every recording, look out for our Instagram stories as we'll give you the opportunity to submit your questions to our guests and get a shout out. You can also DM us for any other information, suggestions or guest requests.